The reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. If you would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's on page 1049. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It's an honor to have you here. It encourages us by you being here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. Kevin Bass is always real good this particular Sunday of the year of calling back and kind of letting us know how worship service went uh, at the campground at Fall Creek Falls. And, and he called a few minutes ago and said they've had a wonderful worship service there, and they had almost 200 from Mount Juliet in attendance. Uh, at the uh, worship service at the Fall Creek Falls. We're glad that those individuals can get away and be in Christian fellowship like that. And we hope that whatever you do throughout today and tomorrow, perhaps related with the holidays, that you have a safe venture. And, uh, and we look forward to all being back together again Sunday. It is good to have our folks home from the Mississippi missions trip. We're thankful for the great success we hear about their relief efforts and building back a few homes there. A little lady was visiting an art gallery, and she came to one of the contemporary pieces of art, and this little tiny older lady looks up with a puzzled look, and she says, what on earth? And the artist walks over, and kind of a a correction type of answer, he says, well, ma'am, that is supposed to be a woman and her child. And the older lady snapped and said, well, why isn't it? Now, when you think about the Christian life, And you think about the Lord telling us all the things that we're supposed to be and what we are literally supposed to become. Do we need to stop this morning and say to ourselves, why haven't we? When we see individuals talk about someone else and we say, well, they say they're a Christian. In other words, what they're saying with that statement is they say they're a Christian. Why aren't they what they are supposed to be? Well, as we think about our text that we've had for several weeks now, working through 1 Thessalonians. You remember that 
Paul came into, Paul and Silas came into Thessalonica. And the reputation had preceded them that these are the ones that have turned the world upside down and they've come here too. Remember, in other words, they were saying that when people become Christians, there's a drastic change in their life. And so we see that change in Paul. He can't wait to send Timothy back to see if they've maintained that change. In other words, are they still what they were supposed to be? Now, in the text that was so capably read just a few moments ago, did you notice in the first verse, he began by saying, Finally, my brethren... Now, if you know much about the book of 1 Thessalonians, you easily see that there's five chapters in the book. We usually would think about the way we use the word finally today. We would think that that would come just a few verses before the end of the book. Maybe even the last paragraph of the book that he would say, finally, and he would close the book out. But it seems kind of strange that really it's almost in the middle of the book that he says, finally. Why there? I believe it's important for us to note this, not just to understand the text, but I believe it helps us to understand even the part of this writing today and the significance it had for those young Christians and the significance that it would have for even us today. Think with me, and if you've been here for several Sunday mornings, this is going to be easy for you to think about because we've addressed all of this over the past few Sunday mornings. But if not, just think about the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first chapter, he talks a whole lot to them and how they themselves were, were converted how they were converted during a time of great affliction, but yet they still stood with God. And then as we come to the end, that's the first chapter. As we come to the end of the first chapter and go throughout the second chapter, he talks a whole lot about the way that they entered in among them. How Paul and Silas went in like a mother with care for children, like a father that would rebuke a child and and strengthen and teach that child. And then we go into the third chapter. And remember, that's what we covered last Sunday where Paul literally said, I can't endure it any longer. I just have to find out. And so he sent Timothy back to find out whether or not those individuals at Thessalonica had remained faithful. Now, you notice how all of that is so personal? So when he says finally here, we would use this more as a transition to where today we might say it more like this. We might say, now that we've talked about many of those personal things, let me in the last half of this letter write some things that I'm still concerned about your faith. And I want to give you these to hope that they'll strengthen you. In other words, there are many application lessons that you and I can learn and appreciate from the first three chapters. But when it comes to the fourth and fifth chapters, he's going to teach some doctrinal matters that will apply to Christians everywhere. Not just specifically to those of Thessalonica, but these are things that we all need to learn. So here are these young Christians. What is it that they need to learn? The first thing he would teach them is he would teach them about their walk. Let's notice how this walk is to be pleasing to God. Let's read again the first two verses. And notice this walk, and the pleasure of God should be the outcome of this walk. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there, 
he, he says finally, and he says finally, brethren. He's talking to Christians, Christians there in Thessalonica, Christians, you and I today. And notice the emphasis as he says, we urge and exhort you. It's not so much that each one of those tell us something different as much as it is using both of those tells us how much he begs us. He, he pleads with us. He encourages us. Think about these things. These things are on the side of Christ. I call you over to these things. Well, what is it, Paul? He says, before I get into it, I've got to give you one more motivation here. I want you to abound in these things. Okay, Paul, what is it you want us to abound in? I want you to abound in these things more and more. In other words, he says, when you became a Christian, you did these things. But I want these things to just be more and more a description of your life as long as you live. You see, he's really laying the groundwork to say, I've got something important that I want to address to you. What is it, Paul? I want you to think about the way you ought to walk. And the word ought, back in the original language, is stronger than what we usually use it in our English language today. It literally means it's necessary. It's a must. He's saying, I want to tell you the way you must walk. How is it that we ought to walk? To please God. Walk for the pleasure of God, not walking for the pleasure of self. Well, what would the pleasure of God be? He says, it's nothing new. See, verse 2, you know. In other words, these are the things we've already talked about when I was with you there in person. What is it that it is? You know, you obey the commandments that came through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not saying, I'm introducing something new to you. He's saying that same Jesus that gave commandments. I want to remind you, that's the way that you ought to walk. In other words, when we think about the Christian life being described as a walk, which was a very common way that it was described in the New Testament, the idea of a walk is that this earth is not our home. In other words, it's a journey. We are on a pilgrimage. Earth is point A. Heaven is point B. And the Lord's saying, I want you not to live in A. I want you to travel through A to point B. I want you to walk in the Christian life. And the idea also of a walk is that it's active. The Lord never intended for us to settle down and to do nothing. But when we become a Christian, we become very active in the Christian life. He says, I want you to walk this. Now note, you're not going to walk by your own pleasure. Probably all of us know this, but it'd be worth saying at this point. Sometime I want to do wrong and sometime you want to do wrong. Now if we just did things based upon what we wanted to do, we would act upon the pleasures of ourselves, and we'd find ourselves doing wrong. We would find ourselves getting off of the walk and into sin. I want you to think about the Lord handing us a a map. And on this map, it has point A and point B. And it has the direction, the pathway that we are to follow from A to B. And he makes it very clear. I want you to arrive to point A. I want you to follow these directions. I'm sorry, to point B. I want you to arrive there. Now, Lord, I'm understanding you correctly. It would be your pleasure... It is what pleases you in your life for us to arrive to be by following this. He'd say, absolutely, that's what I want you to do. And so we begin this journey. Now along the journey, he's not going to force us on that way. Along the journey, we make decisions every day. And it could be like this. We look over and we see someone doing something over to the left. And we say, wow, that that looks like that's a lot of fun. But the Lord said that he wanted me to go this way. Why does it look like they're having so much fun? It would please me today if I could do that. Well, see, now we're making the decision whether or not we're going to walk with the Lord, pleasing God, or if we're going to leave the walk with the Lord and please self. 
I want to walk with the Lord today. I want to sacrifice self-will. If any man will come after me, let him deny self, take up his cross and follow me. I want to do that. We walk on, we look to the right. We say, well, look what they're involved in. That activity looks like a lot of fun. I hear them laughing a lot. It looks like they're really enjoying that. I want to do that. And the Lord would say, I don't want you to do that. My pleasure is for you to follow this map. All throughout life, we're going to have to make the decision if we're living to please self or if we're living to please God. The thing that amazes me is how many people, and I'm sure all of us would have the tendency to do this, How many people will live their life saying, this is clearly God's will, this is clearly God's will, and then something will change in their life, and they literally will say, I don't believe that's any longer God's will. I really think what God wants me to do now is this. I've heard individuals say, I really think what God wants me to do now is divorce my spouse. You've believed all of your life that divorce was sin. You have no scriptural grounds for divorce. And some way now, you believe that today something has changed and you believe that's what God wants you to do. And so you question them. Why do you believe that? I've heard this more than once. I know God would not want me to live my life not being happy. Can you imagine that? The idea where someone has that road map out and they have lived their life for so long saying, I want to please God, I want to please God. But then they get pulled off over to the left or they get pulled off over to the right in a search for pleasure. But yet their guilty conscience makes them say, oh, I'm only doing it because now I really believe this is what God wants me to do. Friends, that was just one example of what could be literally millions of examples. The emphasis at this point in the lesson is not that particular example. The emphasis is we try to convince ourselves that God would want me to do it when it's not what God wants. So let's be honest with ourselves. How can we be honest with ourselves? How can we hold our own feet on the right path? We can't do it unless we have the lamp, the Word of God. See there in verse 2? It's not something new I'm introducing to you. You know, it's the commandments of God that come through Jesus Christ. That's the way that we know what is the will of God, what is the pleasure of God. So as we think about that, then we realize how beautiful the commandments are. I always have to scratch my head and and really I almost get a little tense in my jaws. And those of you that have been in the Sunday morning Bible class across the way, you know what I'm about to get at now. It gets me a little bit angry when I hear people, when they say, well, well, the Bible's just a love story. And, and we, we don't need to talk about the idea that there's rules and commandments. God just wanted us to see it as love. That's right. Now, let's define it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You better believe God wants a relationship with us. God wants us to have a loving and supportive relationship with each other. God even wants us to love our enemies and love the community around us. He wants us to capture the heart of Mount Juliet. But I can tell you this, God had no problem saying, I've got commandments, and if you're going to walk with me, you'll follow them. Period. The apostles had no problem saying, if you want to love God... Follow the commandments that's been given through Jesus Christ. That's the way you ought to walk. Not to please self, that'd be a disobedience to commandments, but to please God. Friends, I want to throw this out for you to mull over and think about next time you hear someone say, as they downplay the commandments of God, I want you to think about, 
Was that God that downplayed them? Was that the inspired apostles that downplayed them? Or was it man that downplayed them? You and I know that we need to always line up with God and His writings. Notice the second thing that he says. The second thing, we look at the will of God. In other words, not just the pleasure of God and walking in His commandments, but look at at 3 through 5 as we think about His will. He's writing to those of Thessalonica. He's urging them to stay with the will of God. And he says, for this is the will of God. Now, the original text did not have the article the in this particular place. In other words, he's not saying this is the totality of the will of God. He's just saying what I'm about to tell you is the will of God on this particular subject. So this is will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should possess, should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles, or in other words, like the heathens who do not know God. We have a powerful teaching there where he says, okay, let me tell you about the will of God. The will of God is the way you possess your vessel. Now, when we think about a vessel, it's that which contains something. How are you going to possess your vessel? Well, he gives us two lines of thought here as it pertains to this particular topic. He says, one is, there are going to be those that they are driven by the lust, like those of the Gentiles. In other words, those out in the world, they're driven by lust. Now, if you'll notice at the end of verse 5, he said, The reason why is because they do not know God. Knowledge. They don't know the commands of God. And so lust is driving them. Now, instead of abstaining from sexual immorality, they're going to be involved in sexual immorality. Now, what's the result of sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is a dishonor to your body and to God, the Creator. Turn with me, if you will, Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, we have a writing here where he deals with man leaving God. They knew God, but eventually they left God. They went into idolatrous worship. Apparently, they went also into homosexuality. Then as he comes out of that particular topic, he addresses several of the sins and closes by saying, these are worthy of death. But now, I'd like for you to notice as we do not have time to develop this whole paragraph, but let's notice some key points as it relates to the key points that we just made here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Notice as we read verse 24. This is in Romans, the first chapter, verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness. We're going to talk about cleanliness later on or uncleanliness in, this, in our study. But notice He gave them up. In other words, God's not going to force anyone to live a righteous or a pure life. So they wanted to do it. He gave them up to uncleanliness. What? In the lust of their hearts. You see, now they're not guided by the knowledge of God. Now they're guided by lust. Now what was it going, what was going to be the outcome? To dishonor their bodies among themselves. When we use our body in a way that the Creator has not designed for it to be used, it is a dishonor to our bodies, which also dishonors the Creator. That's why homosexuality is a dishonor. It's a dishonor to the body. It's a dishonor to God. But also fornication, adultery, they're dishonors to the body because the body was not designed to be used in that way. Let's skip down two verses. Let's go to 26. For this reason... God gave them up. Again, He's not forcing anyone to serve Him. He gave them up to vile passions. Now this word vile is interesting here. When you do a word study on it, you know one of the key words to define vile? Dishonorable. So He gave them up. Why? Because they had dishonorable passions, lust. They had a desire to do wrong. For even their women exchanged the natural use. That's talking about 
the, the way of growth, of productivity, in other words, reproduction does not come about through homosexuality. The natural use, which is against nature, that's talking about the anatomy. Anyone can look at the anatomy of a man and woman and see that homosexuality is against nature. In other words, it's against reproduction. It is against nature. What is this saying? God is helping us see it is dishonorable. It's dishonorable to individuals. It's dishonorable to the Creator. It's dishonorable to a society. Do you realize if everyone on the world today became a homosexual, the world's over? No more generations. It's dishonorable. Anything that hurts societies is a dishonor to that society. Not to mention all of the disease that, and the other aspects and the social effects and etc. But just that alone, as he mentions here in 26. All right, let's notice in 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. See what's happening here? They did not know God. Instead, they were driven by lust. God gave them over to be to a debased mind to do things which are not... In other words, it was things that were dishonorable. Now, remember this other side? This other side over here is a vessel that knows God. It is a vessel that has made a decision to live their life in such a way that would be sanctified. That's the word in our text today, sanctified. A lot of times when we say, if this was, if this was an adult class and, and, and I said, okay, we're talking about sanctification. Can someone define sanctification? Nine out of ten times, here's the first answer that someone will give in that type of setting. To be set apart. That's correct. Sanctification, be set apart. But let's go back deeper than that. Really, if we go back deeper in the study of sanctification, sanctification means almost the same thing as holiness. It means to be free from impurities. In other words, if we were in the world and we were living a life of of sexual immorality, when we rid ourselves of all of that and we are free of impurities, we're no longer in the world. We rid ourselves and we're free of impurities. Now we have been set apart. And so he says, I want you to live a life. Now that your life is no longer led by lust, but now your life is led by... Jesus Christ. Now your life is led by the knowledge of God. Be sanctified. And then he says, I want you to be sanctified. And he points out that sanctification, that it is of honor. Notice the honor is of great worth. In other words, there is an honorable way to live our life. Now notice, it not only brings honor to our own bodies, it also brings honor to God, the Creator. It also brings honor to a community. Think about if everyone in a community ceased sexual immorality. Think about that community. No broken homes. No children would be born that were unwanted. Every child that would be born would be born to the mother and father that were husband and wife. Think about how poverty on that issue alone would be heavily stamped out. Think about the changes in disease and the effect that it would have not only on health but welfare. Let's read the next verse as we see a powerful point that God tells us about vengeance as it leads to how our immorality affects others. You see, it depends on how we want to possess our body But then he says, I want to give you some motivation. It's not just about you. Look at verse 6. 
And no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Now that's interesting language when he's talking about sexual immorality. And, and he said for those that, that have their life set upon God, those that are, have knowledge of God leading their life, that they've set apart their life, they are abstaining from sexual immorality. And then on the flip side over here, we have those that are not doing that. And then he says, wait a minute, I want to remind you of something in 6. Notice that again, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother. Now if at that point we stop, it'd be easy to say he must be changing the subject. He must be talking about now something that's dealing with business dealings. We don't want to take advantage of a brother. We don't want to defraud a brother. Maybe now he's, he's, he's flipped over and he's talking about just life out in the community and our integrity among mankind. He's speaking about our integrity among mankind, but he's still talking about the very same thing. Because if you'll notice, he says, take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter. Sexual immorality always harms more than just the one or two that's involved in this sexual immorality. Adultery affects families. Fornication not only affects the two that's involved separating them from God because sin separates us from God, but it also is a sin against the spouse in the future that one day could have had a relationship the way God designed it, but now their wife or husband, they've been defrauded of that because of past relationships. One of the things that stood out could not be missed was when we did stateside mission trip last year in inner cities Chattanooga. To my knowledge, we only met, and I'm only speaking for myself, I'm sure that there are exceptions to this, but to my knowledge, I only found one husband and wife that were married to each other and had their children. Out of the hundreds of homes that I had contact with. You go into that kind of setting... And you see people that are hurting. People that have lost direction. And a lot of people that really don't have a hope for tomorrow. In their minds, they don't. Now, you and I know they can. But in their minds, they don't have it. And you say, what is beating these people down so much? Friends, I'm not suggesting to you that this is a one thing is a cure-all. But I'm telling you, if sexual immorality was removed from their community, the place would not look the same in ten years. You wouldn't recognize it by any stretch of the imagination in two generations. But you know what? It won't ever be removed because people start campaigns to remove it. Because one of the things I need to hear loud and clear from the Word of God this morning is that the world will always be sexual immoral. If we want to change things, we have to change things one person at a time by taking Jesus Christ to them. And when we take Jesus Christ and they change their minds from the lust of heathenism to the knowledge of God, 
And when they use their body instead of for immorality, they use their body for abstaining from sexual immorality. And instead of living a life that is dishonorable, they live a life that brings honor to themselves, to their God, and to the people around them, and to their family. Then things have changed. David, why are you making such a big point of this? Because I'm not so convinced that we in the church believe that sexual immorality is such a bad thing. How does this strike you? Prime time, just a week or two ago, May 18th, had a show entitled, What Parents Don't Know About Their Teen Daughter's Sex Lives. They had several 14 to 16-year-old girls, and they brought them all in a room together and had them to have an all-night session, kind of like a sleepover atmosphere, so they get the girls to loosen up and talk about their lives. And they did, and they videoed all of this. And then they showed it to their parents, and then their parents had to see what was really taking place in their youth's life. And I want you to notice a statement that probably best describes the world. I'm not talking about the world in 2006. I'm talking about the world. The world in the first century. The world a thousand years ago. The world today. And if the Lord gives a thousand more years, it'll be the same world then. But Tracy's stepdad, this was one of the young ladies, Tracy, her mother is speaking here, and this is a quote. But Tracy's stepdad may not understand and might punish her when he hears her confession, her mother Elaine said. I think he expected for her to stay pure until she was married, she said. But you know what? This is not realistic. This is a mother speaking. This is not realistic. That's not living in the real world, just like the boy's parents don't live in the real world either. How does that strike you? I wonder if anyone here heard that and said, well, you know, she's right. You can't expect people to stay sexually pure today. I wonder how many of you heard that and said, what a shame. You mean to tell me that people honestly believe that it's impossible to remain sexually pure today? I'd like to line up somewhere in the middle. Not to ride the fence. But you see, the woman stated it absolutely right. She said to avoid sexual immorality is not living in the real world. Paul went to Thessalonica and he turned people upside down and he called them out of the world to a new life. And you better believe that anyone that's living in the world has no problem with sexual immorality. That's the real world. We're fools if we tell our children, you need to remain pure and in and, and some way, there's, there's probably not going to be a lot of pressure put around you and, and maybe things are changing in our environment. I hear a lot of people today talking about abstaining from sex into marriage. Come on, young people, you can do it. Let's tell young people the truth. When we were young, it was a huge temptation. And when our grandparents were young, it was a huge temptation. And when they have grandchildren, their grandchildren will have the same temptation. It boils down to this. You want to be a Christian? You want to have the knowledge of God? You want to walk a walk that's not to please you, but it's to please God? 
You want to bring about the pleasure of God in your life instead of the pleasure of self? You want to hurt yourself and the other people and stand before the great avenger in the end and here depart from me? Friends, it's our call. We're not talking about a teenage problem. We're talking about a problem that affects America. We're talking about a problem that affects the church. We're talking about mamas and daddies committing adultery. We're talking about men and women addicted to pornography. We're talking about individuals that have no scruples when it comes to their entertainment and which movies they go to and how they fund with their ticket prices men and women committing adultery and fornication and say, everybody's doing it. Go to the MySpace. Parents, go to MySpace and see what your children are writing and see if it's moral. See if sexual immorality is being promoted. You better believe it's being promoted on most spaces because that's the world. See if it's being promoted on your child's site and find out if they're a Christian or if they're in the world. Friends, I didn't write it. Our God that loves us and wants what's best for us is one that wrote it. And I can tell you the stand that you and I take, not with our mouth, but with our life, tells us this morning on this particular topic if we're a Christian or if we're one of them that's just supposed to be. But we're not. We close with Paul's words of a call. Notice as we go back to verse 7 and 8, For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us His Holy Spirit. Paul writes some tough stuff. Can you imagine these people coming out of idolatry where probably sexual immorality was a part of their worship? And can you imagine him writing this? And you know what he says? I just want to remind you. I know we have a good relationship. He's already said back in chapter 3, I know that you long to see me again, but I want to remind you of this. I'm not asking you to do this as a man, as a person. I'm teaching you the will of God. You reject this, and you reject God. It's about pleasure. It's about the walk. It's about the will. The walk for God, the pleasure of God, the will of God. It's about vengeance. The Lord said, realize, we're going to stand and give an account for all this. It's about the call. Not some mystical or magical call. I feel a calling inside. He's talking about the invitation to live for Him. Will you obey my commandments this morning? I don't know how to say it exactly, but let's give it a shot. I beg you and I to make a stand that's different from the world. If we go to all the same places of sexual immorality being promoted, and we participate in all the things, in some way convince ourselves that we've pleased God, we've missed the whole aspect of Christianity. This morning, let's make a journey that's holy. A journey that's set apart from the world. 
And this particular topic, it really sets apart Christians from the world. If you haven't been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, I'd urge you to do that this morning. There's no better journey. There's no better journey with a greater destination than the journey of that walk with Christ. If you're a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins today? If you have begun that journey somewhere in the past and something has separated you, and now you look a little bit too much like the world and you want to look more like a child of God, there's not a person here that hasn't made a mistake. There's not a person here that doesn't struggle from time to time to living the Christian life. But friends, it comes down to this. We'll either walk one way or we'll walk the other. And let's make sure this morning that we're ones that we have made our turn. And if not, we'll make it again today. And we're making our destination with God. What a pleasure that will give us for an eternity.